Hello and welcome to Uncle Steve's Iron Maiden Zone, and I am know that you are all going to be thrilled. I've been getting a lot of questions about when this episode was going to come out, and that being the new Somewhere Back in Time episode. Don't be afraid. Hi, I'm George, and you're listening to Uncle Steve I Maiden Zone. Yeah, woo! As we go somewhere back in time with my dad Andrew. Come on, Uncle Steve, the show's about to start. So obviously, if you're doing somewhere back in time, you gotta have, you gotta have the Weekend Warrior, the, let's see, I think of these nicknames, Georgie's dad, Sonia's husband, the, my rightful heir to the British throne, uh, the, <laughs> let's just call him the king of this podcast. Andrew Whitnall. Andrew, how are you, sir? I'm I'm struggling to stay awake, but I am okay. Thank you. It's before 6 a.m. for Andrew right now, so we're going to have some pity on him. But this. And I lost an hour due to daylight savings as well. Oh, gosh, that's rough. And, And what's really cool about this is this week, Andrew has brought a friend with him. And if you're a old fan of the show, then you'll absolutely know who his friend is. Coming to us all the way from New Zealand, we have James Fraser. How are you, sir? I'm very well, Steve. Thank Th- you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. You're always welcome. You're always welcome. And Andrew, thanks thanks for uh, hooking him up. Well, I did promise. <laughs> if, if there's uh, an expert about this particular subject, then um, it's definitely James, not me. Ah, this is going to be good. This is going to be good. So... We're going to play a really, really fast game of Stump the Dummy this week, Andrew, because I'm going to be able to guess the album and the song right off the bat. Are you ready? Uh, I'm ready. Yes. Um. Off of Somewhere in Time, we are going to be talking about Stranger in a Strange Land. Oh, well done. Very <laughs> clever. Genius.
given that they're on the tour, have you seen this tour, James, by chance? Oh, no, I haven't. Man, I wish I could, but no, no. What I'd give to see Alexander the Great. Mm. Oh, yeah. oh, and of course, the, the, the song that we're focusing on today. But yeah, wow, yeah. what a tour. Yeah, absolutely. Did you see any of the Senjutsu tours, by the way? Me? No. I saw the last show I saw was Lisa the Beast in Vancouver and then Tacoma. Now, okay. They were going to come to New Zealand and Australia for Lisa the Beast. It's a painful, painful mm. memory for Andrew and I. Yeah. Um, we had our tickets, unfortunately, that got canned. Yes. Uh, but there's many, 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 many events around the world did. So, you know, we're not dwelling in self pity. <laughs> Not too much. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I hope they get over there. I hope they get over there before they hit another U.S. tour because I saw the Legacy Tour twice. Uh, the second time was when they had the, the first three tracks from the album, mm. from Senjutsu. I would have loved to see this second half of the tour, though, get to hear Hell on Earth and Time Machine and all that. Yeah. So, But as it, as it is, uh, let's get on to this. So who wants to start us out? I'll tell you what, Andrew. Yeah, yeah, let Andrew get us going, and then and then we'll all join oh. in. I thought I thought we'd start on a, um, with a quote um, from Adrian Smith, which is, "I remembered a weird story I read in the newspapers once: the story of the Franklin expedition, where the crew had been stranded in the Arctic in 1845." In 1984, the body of one of the sailors, John Torrington, was exhumed, almost perfectly preserved in its permafrost grave. The picture of poor Torrington was published around the world in the mid-1980s and certainly left an impression on me. I was very moved and had based the song's lyrics on this story. Do you see do you see James miming your every word? James is... <laughs> he's now I had to get that quote from somewhere else because I haven't got the book, but James has got oh. the book. <laughs> should, you should get the book. It's a, it's a well. If you're into fishing, it's an exceptional book. I'm not. Yeah. So so, no, so I would call I. It, I would call it an, an okay book with uh, several books which are amazing. Um, there's a second quote in the book, which we might mm-hmm. come back to later once we've uh, revealed some of the mystery because it's uh, it's pretty hmm. pertinent stuff. Now, Steve, I've just sent you an image, um, text you an image. Okay. Which is the oh. image of John Torrington. Yeah. And you can see why that's, that's such a, a haunting image so of, a, of a man pretty much perfectly preserved, what, 140-odd years after his death. Mm. Yeah. Yes. So there you go. That's the inspiration. So, um, so I thought we would structure this sort of. I would um, you know, build up the uh, the um, uh, story from way before the Franklin expedition, expedition, and then James take over the actual meat of the uh, the expedition itself. Okay. Um, so yes, it's the Franklin expedition, and which was in the mid nineteenth century. It's a, it was an expedition to discover the Northwest Passage, which um, is a uh, a passage through the what is known as the Canadian Arctic Archipelago, 
which for those who aren't geographically minded is the bunch of islands between the north of Canada and Greenland. Okay. And uh, it's an alternative route to going south uh, via Cape Horn around the bottom of South America to get from the Atlantic to the Pacific. Um, That's wild. So where do we where do we start with this? Well, um, on the 3rd of August, uh, 1492, a Genoese explorer departed from a Spanish port uh, with three ships. Uh, and he had been commissioned by the king and queen of a newly united uh, Spain uh, to set out across the Atlantic to find a route from Europe to East Asia. Now, the discovery of uh, a route to the likes of Japan and China and uh, the Far East was uh, bringing wealth and prestige to Spain. And um, that explorer, of course, was Christopher Columbus. And he was convinced he would discover it. And on the 12th of October, he thought he had. Uh, and he maintained, apparently, he maintained the belief that he had bumped into the uh, uh, Asia um, all his life, contrary to all the evidence that was in front of him. And um, what he'd really done is bump into a small island in the Bahamas. And, um, of course, Europeans had rediscovered the American continent. Uh, now, the American continent is a nearly 9,000-mile-long barrier between Europe and East Asia. Getting around and across or through the barrier would challenge uh, the likes of seafarers and explorers and governments and engineers uh, and for many, many years and lead many to an early grave. As a result of that discovery, of course, America was plundered by the emerging empires of Spain and Portugal and France and Netherlands and England. Um, and there were various other expeditions to uh, once the discovery of the Americas, for example, Ferdinand Magellan uh, discovered the passage around the southern tip, uh, around Cape Horn, and he was the first to sail from the Atlantic to the Pacific. Many years ago, about a thousand years ago, the Vikings, of course, had explored the Canadian archipelago, and um, they got as far as a place called Ellesmere Island, and they... Um, had settled briefly, I think, in Newfoundland. Um, but the first known deliberate attempt to find a Northwest Passage uh, into the Pacific Ocean from the Atlantic was in 1497, when Henry VII of England sent Italian explorer uh, John Cabot to discover a route to the Orient. So, as I say, there's many... Um, uh, uh, once America had been discovered... And once the, uh, the the place had been plundered, there was an, an, there was a need to be for it to be explored, and also for there to still find this route. Up until um, this point, Europe had traded with the Far East via the Silk Roads, which is a series of roads that go across from China through what do we know as the Middle East uh, into Europe. So an, uh, an item that you were uh, set out from China passed through many, many, many different hands before it would reach Europe. And, of course, the price kept going up and up and up and up and up until it reached Europe. So Europeans, of course, wanted to get things like silks and spices and et cetera. Uh, 
a lot cheaper, a lot more, and a lot easier. So sailing from Europe to the east, of course, went all the way around Africa into the Indian Ocean and then into places like the Spice Islands before you got up into China. So was there an easier route? And the obvious place was to go in the opposite direction, west. But, of course, America was in the way. Hmm. So I'm just going to mention a few names of people that were um, uh, trying to discover the passage or a passage through uh, after Cabot um, because there there was various expeditions. There's the likes of Martin Frobisher in 1576 and John Davis in 1585. Um, A French explorer, Jacques Cartier, sailed up the St. Lawrence River in Canada in 1535, convinced that was the passage, um, but he only got as far as some rapids in Montreal. Um, There is in um, Francisco de Ulloa uh, was in the Pacific exploring North America's west coast and concluded that the Gulf of California in what is now northwest Mexico was the western end of a seaway that led to the St. Lawrence. Um, and this myth- mythical passage uh, became known as the Strait of Anion, and it became anchored in uh, the imagination of European explorers, including the likes of Sir Francis Drake, who attempted to find the passage in 1579. Um, Uh, A gentleman called Henry Hudson in 1609 sailed from New Amsterdam, now New York, up the Hudson River, presumably named after him, uh, believing that was the entrance to the passage. And he later also explored um, the Canadian archipelago and into Hudson Bay, uh, where his crew mutinied. And he was left set adrift in a small boat with some sick and loyal crewmen, never to be seen again. Um, uh, a Danish expedition led by Jens Munk uh, in 1619 made it also into Hudson Bay, but they suffered from the cold, starvation, and scurvy. Mm. And the following year, Munk and only two men survived to limp back to Norway. So, Scurvy, if you don't know, is the uh, the, the disease that ravaged uh, sailors back in uh, those days. It is a lack of it's a vitamin C deficiency, and from as much as I know, it is a very long, slow, and painful death. You gradually get sicker and sicker. I think your your teeth fall out, your gums go hard and black, and it's really desperately unpleasant. It's just a lack of vitamin C. But what? But they didn't know what caused scurvy. And I think it was just they happened to discover that if you ate uh, fruit and vegetables, fresh fruit and vegetables, that diminished the, uh, the uh, amount of scurvy that uh, sailors suffered from. Um, they didn't know why it did. They just knew that's what's happened. So uh, ships started to be provisioned with uh, things like lime juice. Um, and uh, I think the the British use, surprisingly, uh, sauerkraut quite a lot in the Royal Navy uh, because that contained um, vitamin C. Um, but they didn't know what caused that, though, the scurvy? They, they didn't know it was vitamin C that 
that you needed in order to uh, in, you know to to survive. Sure. Uh, but um, but they just knew that if you ate fruit, vegetables, that uh, that you would uh, feel a lot better than if you didn't. I think also fresh meat is a is a is a reasonable source of vitamin C, but I'm not entirely sure about that. <clears throat> yes. Well, that will. Um, uh, become a little bit of a. Uh, we'll go back to that, I'm sure, at, uh, at mm-hmm. some point in the story. The passage remained undiscovered, even if if there was a passage. Um, so desperate were the British government to find a passage that they offered a, a sum of £20,000 to anyone discovering it in 1775, which would be about £800,000 in today's money or a million US dollars. Hmm. Um, another famous explorer tried to find it, which is James Cook, um, famous for um, discovering in inverted commas, the east coast of Australia, and uh, I think he might have bumped into New Zealand a few times as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, he attempted to find the passage from the Pacific Ocean in 1778. Uh, his uh, expedition up the American west coast uh, uh, managed to chart a lot of what was previously uncharted territory. He went up in through the Bering Strait, which is the... Um, the Bering Strait is that little gap between the far eastern end of Siberia and the far western end of Alaska. Mm. Uh, and he had to turn back due to sea ice. He revisited uh, Hawaii, where he had previously been, uh, but on this occasion, they outstayed their welcome and Cook was killed during an altercation. So... Um, in the 1770s, a new player entered the scene uh, when the 13 uh, Britain's 13 American colonies were revolting. And one of the drivers of that rebellion was the desire of uh, the American settlers to push west uh, across the Appalachian Mountains. Uh, Britain didn't want them to for various different reasons and uh, wanted to keep them east of the Appalachians. And this is uh, the manifest destiny of the United States to expand from sea to shining sea. And that was fully achieved in the 1840s with the victory in a war with Mexico, uh, gaining a huge lump of territory that includes modern states such as California and Nevada, Arizona, Utah, New Mexico. Um, But Travelling from the long-established cities on the Atlantic coast to the new American settlements on the Pacific coast was a major challenge for this new United States. Um, So, what about our main heroes of this story? Uh, So, into this world sailed one John Franklin, who was born uh, to a large middle-class Lincolnshire family and he decided as a boy he would want a career uh, at sea to improve his station in life. It's not unusual for um, middle-class 
boys to want to go to sea at the time. It was the uh, it's the way of getting a good career. And also the Royal Navy was known as being uh, a you got promoted on your merit rather than on your birth, which was unlike the army, which you basically had to be in the aristocracy, a lord or whatever to to gain uh, to get up and in the ranks of the uh, the army. So the navy was a very um, attractive place for a middle class boy to get in. Hmm. Um, it is interesting to note that Fr- Franklin's sister Sarah was the mother of an Emily Selwood who became the wife of Lincolnshire poet Alfred Lord Tennyson and you will remember Steve who Alfred Lord Tennyson was I hope so from, from our previous episodes <laughs> have you been paying attention <laughs> I'm old Andrew <laughs> What was the last episode we uh, did? No, two episodes ago when we did the Trooper. Ah, uh, okay, yeah. So Tennyson is the poet that wrote the poem "The Charge of the Light Brigade," yes. yeah. uh, from which, of course, Steve Harris was inspired to write the Trooper. Um, so, <laughs> frankly, went to sea in 1800. At 14 years of age, he joined the Royal Navy on board HMS Polyphemus. A year later, he saw battle uh, action at the Battle of Copenhagen. And in 1805, he was at another of uh, Admiral Nelson's great victories, which was to be his last, of course, the Battle of Trafalgar. Um, he later served also in 18 in the War of 1812 against the United States, being wounded at the Battle of New Orleans. But after the end of the Napoleonic Wars and, of course, that war in the United States, um, Europe ten- settled down, generally speaking, into a, an era of peace. And as there were no wars to fight, what do you do with all these ships and men? Well, set out and explore. Hmm. And perhaps... Um, uh, Franklin's interest in exploration was stimulated by serving under another great sailor and another Lincolnshire man, Matthew Flinders. Uh, in 1802, he was on board a survey ship, HMS Investigator, when Flinders circumnavigated Australia. He was the first to do so, uh, and he charted the territory's coastline, proving that Australia was one great big continent rather than perhaps two large islands uh, there had been a theory that it was divided in two uh, and Flinders put uh, an end to that idea um, and so it might have been this experience that helped uh, Franklin when he eventually secured the command of a copy mark, copper mine expedition to Hudson Bay in Canada in uh, which is now in Canada in 1819 it was an overland survey of the northern coast, and it's here he gained a reputation for survival. He um, apparently nearly drowned in Hayes River, and uh, that expedition suffered severe food shortages. Uh, and apparently, due to what they tried to do uh, to stay alive, uh, Franklin, when he got back home to Britain, became known as the man who ate his boots. <laughs> you know, it really, anyway. it really is amazing when you think about 
the world exploration and how like say how big a continent like Australia is and that they could discover so much about it without having airplanes <laughs> flight in any way you know yes uh, there are as an aside there are some I read a book about the Flinders um, circumnavigation which is excellent and also the land exploration of Australia the um, uh, again another book about um, the uh, uh, can't remember what they're called. <laughs> uh, Burke and Wills expedition. That's it. It went from Melbourne here in Melbourne all the way up to the very north coast to be the first to do so and come back again. It was a tragic expedition, um, but those stories are quite fascinating to read. The uh, these uh, setting out into the unknown um, and being often fairly ill prepared for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, as we might discover. Um, so, um, yeah, Franklin went back to the Arctic. He was on the Mackenzie River expedition in 1825, and he returned to England to be knighted by George IV. And he also married uh, his second wife after his first wife died. Uh, she was called Jane Griffin, and she would become a significant player in the following in the years following the ill-fated expedition. Um, but he didn't continue with his exploration. He was sent to back down under, back to Australia and the Lieutenant Governorship of Van Diemen's Land, which is now known as Tasmania. Um, not a happy appointment for him. And uh, colonial politics apparently was not his forte. And after six troubled years, he was relieved of his duties and returned to Britain. Um, he was 57, and he didn't want to be remembered uh, for this unhappy time in Hobart Town. He needed a more heroic expedition to see a place in history. Also back in London was one Sir John Barrow, who was an 81-year-old civil servant. He was um, the second secretary, secretary to the Admiralty, which is the the government department that controlled the Royal Navy. And um, he had been there for 40-odd years, initially under a Tory administration. Um, but when the Whig government under Lord Grey came into power, that established the British tradition of an independent senior civil service, and his position became known as permanent secretary a title still used today um that i threw that in just for those interests those two people that listen that are interested in political history um <laughs> i know who they are <laughs> are you one of them uh no 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 i'm talking about um, oh, course, uh, the honorable counselor count- counselor yeah and uh, and melissa Okay, and it was under under Barrow's uh, watch that the Royal Navy continued to grow, innovate, modernise. Um, he was particularly interested in Arctic exploration and promoted voyages of the likes of Frost, uh, Ross, uh, Parry, and Franklin. Um, a section of the Northwest Passage, the Barrow Strait, is named after him, as is the town of Barrow in Alaska and Barrow Island in Western Australia. Mm. But he was another man that was uh, 
could count his days dwindling down. And in the mid-1840s, as he approached his retirement, uh, he wanted one last push to discover the Northwest Passage, especially before the French, Russians, or heaven forbid, those upstart Americans beat the British to it. So... Um, I think we can hand over to James, hopefully, to take us through or lead us through the next phase of the story. Lead you through the Northwest Passage, crikey. <laughs> Indeed. It's fascinating when we think about Arctic exploration and, and exploring the coastline, circumnavigating Australia and going across land on these journeys. I, I don't think modern office-dwelling people really have an appreciation for just how extreme these journeys were. The closest thing I can think of in roughly contemporary terms is the journey to the moon. Um, or alleged journey to the moon, depending on which side <laughs> that divide you yeah. stand on. Um, but that, I mean, that's kind of trivial in comparison. We all know the moon's there. We can all see it. Obviously, to get there was an incredible feat. But you know exactly where you're going. When you're setting out to find the Northwest Passage, when you're setting out to explore Antarctica, when you're trying to sail around Australia or go across Australia, you've genuinely got no idea how long it's going to take, what you're going to encounter, and what you're going to need to survive. So these journeys were multi-year endeavours. Pardon the James Cook pun. <laughs> if you were heading out to explore the Northwest Passage, you're gone for anywhere from one to five years. Mm. And, I mean, these are all obvious statements, but I'll say them anyway. There's no cell phones. There's no email. There's no popping out after six weeks so you can see your family and have a little bit of sunshine and some decent food. You are on those ships and you are with your crew of, say, 130 people, and you're not going to see anybody else for the next five years. Maybe some Inuit if you're lucky. Um, and you may never be seen again. Yeah. A typical crew member would be very young, very poorly educated, um, and they'd have one or two jobs on the ship. They might be 22 years old, saying goodbye to their families, thinking, I'm never going to see you again, and them thinking the same. Yeah. Honestly, the, the only equivalent I could wrap my head around with was uh, Star Trek, to boldly go, where no one has gone before. <laughs> I mean, that, that is genuinely... I, I, I've never met Gene Rodenberry, but I imagine that he was inspired to write Star Trek by Arctic explorers and, and New World explorers, where you... You depart on the ship with everything you think you might need, and that's it. You're gone, and you lose all contact mm -hmm. with everybody else. It's It just blows my mind how 
unbelievably brave these people were and how incredibly ambitious and driven they must have been to put their lives well and truly on the line to to undertake these incredible journeys um, yeah well, well, the expected lifespan back then must not have been because you know nowadays we think, oh well, you know, a good long life is seventy or eighty years or whatever. And back then, it couldn't have been the same. They must not have thought of life, live, you know, but life going that far. It, it wasn't as bad as you might think. Uh, I mean, we're we're talking, you know, eighteen forty, eighteen fifty kind of period when these expeditions were going on in particular. Um. I mean, you mentioned a couple of names there, George. Uh, George, I did it again. Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> For those who don't know, we've got George's name on Andrew's video feed. Right. So using George's Yeah. Yes. Um, you know, the, the, some of the sponsors for these journeys were, were in their 80s. So, you know, people had reasonable lifespans. Okay. Obviously, that wasn't the same for the, uh, the underclasses, as it were. Yes. Um, and a lot of people, you know, 20s were your prime for a reason because that's when you were physically able to undertake these kind of journeys and, and, sure. and get these kinds of jobs. And life was certainly a much, much harder endeavor than it is today. But, you know, the, think, the think life once, has been once, pretty good. Yeah, once you got through childhood, which was the, one of the biggest risk periods, yeah, uh, yeah survival was pretty much, uh, oh, yeah, I think, into 60s, 70s wouldn't, wouldn't be unusual at all. Okay. Yeah. But when you talk about um, Franklin joining the Royal Navy at aged 14 and seeing active combat aged 15, Golly. I think of my own 15 year old son. And uh, yeah, that's, that's <laughs> quite, quite a terrifying prospect, probably for him as yeah. much as it is for me. It was yes. certainly a different, certainly a different world. And, and the idea of going on a multi year sea journey aged 14, surrounded by, you know, quite intimidating seafaring adults mm-hmm. that, that's i mean that's a that's a different type of living isn't it oh yeah yes. absolutely different Definitely. type of living. quite extraordinary yeah and you have to go on board a ship because uh, in um in the uh, maritime museum in sydney there's a replica of the endeavor and to go aboard one of those ships to see the size of it i.e how small it is and how cramped some of those conditions are for a number of men to survive for not only months, years in that environment is just uh, unimaginable. Yeah. Unless you're the captain and get the nice uh, uh, quarters at the, <laughs> <laughs> at the back of the ship. Well, that's it. I mean, when you're on these ships, they are, because you're going for multi year journeys, they are packed to the gunnels with mm. supplies, materials that are needed. As Andrew rightly said, the officers will have a nice cabin um decked out with in franklin's case uh, famously beautifully ornate writing desks um maps and beautifully carved purpose-built storage cupboards um a luxurious bed he would have meetings there he would entertain officers in his cabins but to contrast that the men wouldn't have a fixed area for sleeping they would sling their hammocks on a hook wherever they could, hmm. and they would be crammed into every little nook and cranny on the ship. Um, we're talking, thirty. I think it was 33,000 pounds of tinned food on one of the two ships mm-hmm. on, on, the exhibit, on the exhibition we're about to talk about. Animals, um, materials, scientific materials, lumber for building, because they, they, where they land, they have to build everything they need to survive. So they're taking years worth of materials with them and mm. so people are just sleeping anywhere they can and amongst all of that 
very small space on a large ship, admittedly, but yeah, not comfortable quarters. It's a long way from the cruise ship that we might climb on today to go and visit some of these areas. So before we talk about the Franklin expedition, I think it's important to talk about the two ships that were involved. Um, they're called the HMS Terra, good name, and the HMS Erebus, also a good name. And these two ships have a strong connection, not just to the Franklin expedition, but to Steve, your country, the United States of mm-hmm. America. Okay. Andrew, to your country, yes. Australia, obviously <laughs> in the UK. Mm-hmm. And to my surprise, uh, when I started reading about these sorts of things a few years ago, to my country, New Zealand. So the Erebus, I'll talk about next, but very quickly, the Terra. It's referenced not by name, but by deed in a quite famous song, um, which is popular in your country, Steve. It's called The Star Spangled Banner, I, think I believe is the title. I think I've heard of that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, now, I won't ask you to sing the, the line oh, in particular, and I'm certainly not, not going <laughs> to attempt it either, do my best Whitney Houston impression. But there's, a, there's a, a couple of lines in it that I'd like to quickly read out. Okay. And the rocket's red glare, the bombs bursting in air, gave proof through the night that our flag was still there. So that line, the rocket's red glare and the bombs bursting in the air, that's a reference to the war and the fighting back in 1812. And the ship that was throwing the bombs, which were bursting in the air, was the HMS Terror. Oh, wow. So... The thing about ships back in the day, in the 18s, was that they were multi-purpose through their lifetime. So a ship might be built for one purpose, and then 10 years later, it might be retired and completely repurposed for something else. So the Terra, although it's most famous for the Franklin Expedition, it had a very interesting life. So it was built as a mortar ship. Now, a mortar ship is a ship that has... 10 cannons around the outside but in the middle it's got it as the name suggests a very large uh, mortar which can fire very heavy artillery over quite large distances and it was used in the war against the uh, united well what became the united states and it was the one fleeing the bombs that are referenced in the lyrics to the star spangled banner (laughs) that's cool which was a poem of course originally now there was also another ship in that same battle, and it was firing the rockets, and it was the HMS Erebus. However, it is a different HMS Erebus. (laughs) The British Navy liked the name so much that when the original HMS Erebus was decommissioned and the second Erebus was built, they uh, they kept the name. So both of the ship's names are uh, are referenced, one being the rockets, one being the bombs, but they were actually separate ships. With that's the terror cool. being the original, but carried on. Yeah, it's pretty cool. That, that's the, the the continuing of a name of a ship is not uncommon at all. The name ships get uh, the name gets passed down over the over the years, uh, particularly the Royal Navy. I don't know about any other navy, but yes. Um, so that's not that's uncommon for happen. Do you know? Do you know whether there's another Erebus and Terror since uh, these these famous ones passed? I I don't know. Um, obviously, the number of ships in the Royal Navy has diminished quite considerably yeah, since the yes, 19th century. Right. <laughs> and it may not be the most so. auspicious name to serve on. No, indeed. 
Yes. Now the Erebus, uh, in terms of New Zealand, uh, is is a, is is a sadder story, and I'm not sure if you know this one, Andrew, but the Terra and Erebus both visited New Zealand on the way to Antarctica on an expedition with Sir John Ross. Um, this was a, a one of those multi-year journeys. Uh, it was a four-year voyage down to the Antarctic for exploration. That was between 1839 and 1843. And during that journey, they discovered and named many, many things. You might have heard of the Ross Sea down in Antarctica. Um, these were ships that were, at the time, the Erebus was 19 years old and the Terra was 32 years old. Um, they had 20 horsepower steam engines that were taken from railway um, mm worlds and they had screw propellers added on them and they could chug along at an astonishing four knots per hour mm. um, they were cutting edge at the time absolutely cutting edge technology they also used the steam that was produced from these um, propellers to uh, have central heating inside the ship so they were considered luxurious so they're all decked out for their antarctic journey and away they went with james clark ross and they discovered two mountainous volcanoes on the way and they named the one on the left mount terra and then they named the one on the right mount erebus um, now unfortunately in 1979 in new zealand the national airline of my beloved home country um, they were operating tourist flights over antarctica so you could get on um, near new zealand flight and you could fly for I think it was four or five hours fly to Antarctica, fly over oh, wow. um, parts of Antarctica, and then come back and land in Christchurch. So these were obviously very, very popular. Um, they would have been incredibly spectacular. Mm -hmm. um, but on the 28th of November, 1979, uh, in New Zealand flight 901 was flying over Antarctica and flew into Mount Erebus, um, which was on Ross Island, named after James Ross. And all 257 passengers and crew on board died instantly. Mm. Which is very sad. So, the, the known as the Mount Erebus disaster, it is the by far the largest loss of life in um, civil aviation in New Zealand's history, and it's ingrained in all New Zealanders' consciousness, our culture fabric. Um, one of our great tragedies. And so, the name Erebus, when you mention it in New Zealand, is associated with the mountain and the loss of life as opposed to the ships. Just hmm. an interesting side yeah. there. Yeah. Hmm. So the Northwest Passage needed some ships and needed some captains. So the ships were selected as the Erebus and the Terra, as I said. Um, they were well decked out with their railway engines and their propellers and their central heating. They had Sir John Franklin, aged 59 at the time, to lead the expedition, and he was the captain of the Erebus. And on the Terra, the sister ship, they had Francis Crozier. Both had good experience with Arctic exploration, although their crews were relatively inexperienced in this area. Um, there was a lot of feedback at the time that Sir John Franklin was simply too old to go. But as Andrew very eloquently described, he was extremely keen to go 
because of his reputation with Van Diemen's Land and the very nasty experiences he, that he had there, quite unfairly in my view. Wasn't John Ross the first choice? I believe he was. Um, however, yeah. he himself, he was 44, and he actually thought that he was too old, so he ruled himself out. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a 15-year you know, age gap, and yeah, quite a bit of, quite a bit of irony. That's but John funny. Ross was a very vocal supporter of Franklin. Um, so there was a very strong community supporting him not just in seafaring world and the naval world and the admiralty but but right across the social spectrum in britain these people were heroes so if you think of the desire to get to the moon the desire emerging desire to get to mars and how it's captured the world's imagination with spacex and elon musk and all that kind of stuff this is a whole nother level again. The name Sir John Franklin was on everybody's lips when this expedition was getting ready to go. Everybody was interested in what was going to happen. Everybody had been talking about the Northwest Passage for many, many, many years. Everyone knew its importance to the British Empire. Um, and it just sparked everybody's imagination. So these were truly heroes. Um, again, in a way which I don't think we have these days, how famous these people became. Yeah. So, in 1845, the Erebus and the Terror set off. They were accompanied as far as Greenland by a supply ship, which then returned to England with letters from the crews of the two ships. Um, they lost a couple of people on the way. Some people got sick. One person was, was put off for ill discipline. And then on the 26th of July in 1845, two whaling ships saw the Erebus and the Terror um, in northern Baffin Bay, and they reported that information back to England in August of 1845. Everything appeared to be well, and they were on schedule. That was the last contact that the expedition had with the outside world. Hmm. And then for all intents and purposes, they disappeared. However, disappearing back then, as we've already talked about, was a relative term. Um, the expedition was expected to take a minimum of three years. They had provisions to live, not survive, live for three years. And they had a whole lot of hunting equipment so they could make their own rations. So this was an up to a five-year mission. Again, I wonder if that's where Star Trek took its five-year mission inspiration from. I think it probably was. So not hearing anything from them for another year is not unusual, nor is it unexpected. Hmm. So as 1845 became into 1846, there was no news, and that was considered to be good news. Simple as that. Everything was proceeding as planned. That's bizarre. So the, Sorry, go ahead. That's frightening. <laughs> 
So for the men, and they were all men, on these ships, daily life for them was quite different to daily life for an explorer today, the types of exploration we do today. They were surviving in, and working in temperatures which are absolutely extreme. So during the day, it might get up to 35 degrees below zero centigrade. During the night, it could go as low as negative 48 degrees centigrade. Golly. Um, depending on the time of year, you could be in total darkness for 24 hours. Oh, wow, yeah. On a ship with 130 other crewmen in very cramped conditions. Just you, the monkey, the cows, the sheep, <laughs> the dog, and the rats. <laughs> and no flashlights. <laughs> no flashlights, although plenty of light through our oil lamps, which right. is a whole other story. Yeah. So the ship started out, they had cattle, they had sheep, they had pigs, and they had hens. And they were for the first few months of the journey. So the hens would have provided eggs. Um, the cattle would have provided some milk, but by and large, those animals were there to be eaten on the way to finding the Northwest Passage. And the stored provisions, tens of thousands of tin cans, which we will revisit later on in the story, they were for the extended part of the journey. They also had, as already mentioned, a monkey, a very naughty monkey, which was a gift from uh, Mrs. Franklin. Um, and became a notorious thief on board, so it wasn't particularly well-liked by the crew members. They had an old Newfoundland dog named Neptune, and in contrast to the monkey, Neptune was hugely popular amongst the crew. <laughs> and finally, they had a cat. Um, the cat was a working cat. Its sole job was to take care of the rats that infested the ships. Hmm. Um, so each ship was issued with a cat. We've already talked about how the Marines and the officers, particularly the captain, had their own quarters. Everyone else, no fixed bed places. So they were slinging their hammocks anywhere they could find a little bit of space. Now, daily life on the ships was really hard. And daily life on the ice when they landed from the ships was even harder. So when you're working in the sorts of cold that we've described and you're doing hard physical work, like pulling a sled or building a structure or digging a hole, you get very, very hot, but at the same time, it's extremely cold. So if you can imagine wearing huge amounts of protective gear, warming gear, and then you're told to dig a hole or drag a sled with supplies from position A to position B on the ice, you are going to sweat. Now, when you stop sweating, that sweat instantly freezes so there are uh, many recorded instances of someone working hard, wearing a big, thick woolen balaclava, sweating profusely, and then stopping. The sweat freezes. They remove their balaclava when they go back to the ship, and it rips off the skin. It peels off the beard. Oh, God. Yeah, I can see you both wincing. So, so these were <laughs> everyday risks beyond the likes of scurvy, um, which certainly didn't help either. So... Just existing in these incredibly inhospitable environments was a huge challenge mm. for these men. Back to our story. In 1846, so a full year after 
the exhibition, uh, the expedition rather, had left, there was still no news. There'd been no further sightings by whaling ships. Whaling ships were in and around the areas where the Northwest Passage was being explored as a matter of course in the working year. When the ice allowed for it, there'd be whaling ships out there because there was money to be made. And these whaling ships were effectively the uh, telegram of the time. So if a whaling ship mm. saw you, you, they would report back to England and mm. uh, they'd, be, they'd be compensated for that uh, very important job. But there'd been no word. And again, it was expected to take a minimum of around three years. The plan was that they would uh, sail in to uh, already chartered parts of the of the passage and then they would explore um, they were given orders from the admiralty about which direction to go they had a plan a they had a plan b and they had a plan c um, so depending on where the arctic ice flow was on that particular journey they would try plan a if they didn't plan out they would try plan b and then plan c but a big part of all three plans was to land uh, in a suitable harbor and winter over so what that means is they would sail into a harbour when the ice would allow, and then as the ice came in and the um, seas became less navigable, they would winter over. So they'd bring the ships in, they would get off the ships, they would build semi-permanent structures, camps, and they would live on the ice um, for up to six months until the ice melted sufficiently that they could then start exploring again in the spring. Now, I just want to pause and reflect on that just very briefly. The idea of sailing for several months and then finding a harbour and knowing that the ice was going to freeze all around your ship. So let's get off the ship. Let's get onto this frozen wasteland where there's no food. There's very, very little game. Uh, the only real wildlife to mention is polar bears, which are famous for eating people rather than the other way around. Um, and let's build some structures using the materials only the materials we have on the ship. And they'd spend six months in almost complete darkness, um, play the occasional game of cricket, whether allowing, <laughs> but otherwise you've got a library full of religious textbooks and not much else to do. Um, that's quite an intimidating undertaking for most people. Um, the idea of spending that much time in such close quarters constantly cold constantly hungry constantly dark yes um, chills me to the bone in more ways than one <laughs> but that's yeah. exactly what these men signed up for and they would be doing it for multiple years mm. so in 1847 towards the end of 1847 november in fact there was still no news from the franklin expedition and people back in britain started to worry. Mrs. Franklin, Sarah Franklin, had been worrying for some time, and as Andrew already alluded, she was a very active and vocal and constant voice in saying, well, we should send some rescue boats. We should go and make sure these people are okay. Whereas the Admiralty would generally, well, we sent the best people. They're in the most equipped and most advanced ships ever built yeah. at that time. They know what they're doing. They've survived multiple times. Um, the man who ate his Boots, as you was known that for that was a positive thing, not a negative thing. <laughs> These were resourceful people. He did literally, he and his crew did literally eat their boots. Yeah. He he wasn't going to die with his boots on. <laughs> he was not going to die with his boots on. No, exactly, exactly. Um, 
But because, as I said earlier, the Franklin expedition was such big news and it captured the public's imagination, and because Sir John Franklin himself was a, a hugely popular figure with the public at large, the Admiralty offered a reward. So there was a £20,000 rescue um, reward hmm. for rescuing Franklin. There was £10,000 for finding his ships and another £10,000 for finding the Northwest Passage. Now, I find that fascinating. The reward for finding the Northwest Passage, which was the thing that ultimately they were trying to do, was £10,000, which is an awful lot of money back then. But the reward for finding Franklin and his ships was 20000 and 10000 pounds respectively. So <laughs> kind of plays into the, the politics of the time. Sure. And so several rescue missions were put together. Now, these rescue missions ran for many, many years. The Franklin Expedition and the rescue missions, we're, we're talking the initial five years, so through to 1850. They were the initial rescue efforts. And they were met with limited success. But the rescues continued for many, many years afterwards. So it's about a 20-year period in total where people were trying to find Franklin or trying to find what happened to Franklin. And I believe the total, if I'm wrong, Andrew, there's 32 separate expeditions to try and oh, find yeah, him. something like that. Mm. At one point on a very famous place called Beachy Island, which we'll return to shortly, um, there were 10 separate ships from separate expeditions moored at Beachy Island trying to find evidence. Mm. So the financial rewards were significant, but the esteem was even more significant mm. if you could find these people. Um, so, again, captured the imagination of the British public and the American public. Essentially, the, the Western world were fascinated by the story and, mm. and by what had happened to So there was a major breakthrough in August of 1850 on a place called Beachy Island where the first signs of the expedition were found. There were multiple ships that had gone there and they found three graves on the island, Beachy Island. This was in uh, people who had died in January and April of 1846. And one of those graves was the aforementioned John Torrington. Okay. So these graves were found in relative terms very early on. And it was learnt from these graves and from other artifacts that were found there on Beachy Island that the ship had landed there and they'd spent um, to there and they had lived their lives normally there. So finding these three graves wasn't a huge surprise. You know, people die on these expeditions for obvious reasons. Um, three people at that stage is actually quite low in relative terms for these expeditions. They found evidence of camps. They found ramshackle buildings. They found, most enticingly, I think, a crucifix made out of old tin cans that they've been eating from. Um, there's, a, there's a good photo of about 50 of these cans aligned uh, to form a crucifix hmm. um, near their rubbish tip. So they found evidence that essentially the expedition had gone to Beachy Island and it all had been well at that point, and they found the three graves. This was the first evidence that they'd found of the expedition, though. So it re-energized the search for Franklin and the search for Terra and the search for Erebus. Now, I'd just like to pause now and talk about 
the graves on Beachy Island and how they tie back to the song Stranger in a Strange Land. Okay. Because it had always puzzled me why the lyrics to Stranger in a Strange Land did not in any way marry up to the artwork for Stranger in a Strange Land. <laughs> always intrigued and, if I'm honest, annoyed me <laughs> as a young man. <laughs> sure. You've got a title, Stranger in a Strange Land, from a, a Robert Heinlein sci-fi novel. You've got the artwork, which ties to the sci-fi novel quite strongly. You've got a bit of a paraphrased, pun-filled quote on the back of the album sleeve, or the, the, the single sleeve, with a Heinlein quote, which had been bastardized. But the lyrics don't make any sense in a sci-fi context. <laughs> and when I read the lyrics, I thought, this is about an Antarctic explorer. I didn't think Arctic. I thought Antarctic. Um Stranger in a strange land, land of ice and snow, trapped inside this prison, lost and far from home. That doesn't sound like an android in a bar in the far future. <laughs> <laughs> and the second verse, well, let, let's look at the first verse. It was many years ago that I left home and came this way. I was a young man full of hopes and dreams. John Torrington, a young man, left home, went on an amazing journey far far away from where his family was and then the second verse 100 years have gone and men again they came that way to find the answer to the mystery they found my body lying where it fell on that day preserved in time for all to see the discovery of the bodies on beachy island happened in 1850 which yeah. was not 100 years later so until adrian smith's book came out his monsters of river and rock there was a lot of discussion on maiden forums around was it an antarctic expedition was it an arctic expedition and then which one it was because the bodies were found in 1850 and that's not a hundred years mm -hmm. and the bodies were let's say refound and exhumed and uh, all sorts of scientific uh, processes were performed on the bodies including autopsies in the early 1980s, which again wasn't 100 years later, that was <laughs> yeah. 130, 150 years later. So the timelines didn't match up. But I think it's a simple case of 100 years have gone makes a good lyric rather than 135 years, which isn't, doesn't roll off the tongue in quite the same. Quite the same. <laughs> um, so there's an excellent documentary that was made, which I, I do recommend people check out on YouTube. Just type in John Torrington body documentary and you'll find it. Um, but there's a, a second quote I'd like to read from Adrian's book um, that relates to the bodies. When Maiden played in Calgary, Canada on the Summer and Time Tour, we were contacted by one of the team that was involved in the exhumation and autopsy of the three dead sailors, being the, the sailors' graves on Beachy Island. He didn't know much about the band, but wanted to make sure that we showed proper respect to John Torrington, John Hartnell, and William Brain. They were the three who were buried on Beachy Island. He watched the show, and we performed Stranger in a Strange Land. Afterwards, we chatted, and everything was cool. He explained that initially he thought we were just a bunch of out-of-it rock and rollers, using the idea without much thought. He said that the exhumation had left a lasting impression on the whole team, and was a highly emotional experience for everyone, especially one of the camera team who was a relation to John Torrington mm. and bore a striking facial resemblance to him. 
Now, far be it from me to correct Adrian Smith, but he, he actually got that detail wrong. The one of the camera team on the scientific crew who went there in, in the early 80s to dig up the bodies and perform some scientific research, he was a relative of John Hartnell, not John Harrington, or Torrington rather. But it is true that when they exhumed that body and they melted the water away from the permafrost, these bodies are just incredibly well-preserved, including the eyes, the hair, everything was still intact. Mm. And I believe he was the great, great, great nephew of um, Mr. Hartnell. And they looked like they were very close relatives. So that must have been incredibly emotional for him. It's very interesting. That is. So it was still not known what had actually happened to the Franklin expedition <laughs> until the searching continued. Mrs. Franklin, again, stayed very, very vocal back in Britain, constantly lobbying, constantly fundraising, uh, going as far as issuing uh, ceramics and other what you would call merchandise these days, uh, which were sold around Britain to raise funds and to keep the public aware and keep the public enthused and therefore keep pressure on the Admiralty to continue the searching. Then in 1853, there was a man called John Ray. He was a doctor. And he worked for the Hudson Bay Company. And he found out what had actually happened to Franklin. So there had been many expeditions by this point covering all of the area. There was about a 500-mile radius of where people were looking for the ships and for evidence of what had happened to them. He met a group of Inuit, uh, the native people of the area, and they had a very rich and very strong and reliable uh, oral history. They told stories to each other, and they passed those stories on to different groups. And they told John Ray of an encounter they'd had four years previously. So this would have been in 1849 to 50. So this is coming on to five years after the expedition left Britain. So this is at the very, very limit of their three years of provisions mm -hmm. and then their hunting equipment. So they would have been well and truly beyond their means to survive. So the Inuit talked about a group of 40 men and they were dragging a small boat in a southward direction. Um, they were all very thin, and they used sign language to con to communicate with the Inuit to tell them that their ship had been crushed by the ice mm. and had been destroyed, so they had left the ship. They purchased a seal from that group of people, the Inuit, and then they carried on in their way. Then later on in that same year, the same party was encountered, and they were not in good shape. They were about a day's walk from uh, a river called the Great Fish River. Um, the people who saw them described a scene that I would call apocalyptic. Hmm. Um, they came upon the boat. There were dead bodies in tents. There were dead bodies under the boat, which had been turned upside down, presumably for shelter, but also possibly from protection from polar bears. 
there were 30 dead people mm. that they found in that place. So everyone had died. Um, they reported hearing gunshots and they found another five people dead on a nearby island. Hmm. So those gunshots could have been against people. Those gunshots could have been against polar bears. We don't know. But most disturbing of all is that they found cooking pots and evidence of cannibalism. Mm. So several of the bodies had been cut up, Mm. cooked, and presumably eaten. So this is the end of a five-year journey through hell, essentially. So those extreme cold temperatures, the lack of food, the extraordinarily long winters with no sunlight, the scurvy, um, the constant cold, and the fact that you've only got the same people around you all the time. Imagine what that would do to your mental state. Sure, sure. So they were at the very ends of humanity, I would say, at this point five years after their journey had first begun. And there's a quote from Mr. Ray, Dr. Ray, that I'd like to read. From the mutilated state of many of the corpses and the contents of the kettles, it is evident that our wretched countrymen had been driven to the last resource, cannibalism, as a means of prolonging their existence. Now, some Mm. might think that would therefore be the end of the search for the Franklin expedition because bodies had been found, evidence of cannibalism had been found, and news of this quickly made its way back to Britain. And, well, Britons were horrified, obviously. They were horrified because their heroic expedition had failed, and they were horrified at the the depths of, in their view, depravity that had been um, exhibited during the expedition during the end of it. Fortunately, Lady Franklin, persistent as always, mm-hmm. saw opportunity, not horror. She saw that even though it had been, this is in 1857, it had been 12 years after they'd left. So she knew that her husband was probably dead, Sir John Franklin, because he would have been 72 years old at that point. But she still thought there was a chance that some of the younger and fitter crew members were still alive. So she was continuing to push. Hmm for people to go and explore. So expeditions were still being mounted. The uh, reward for the Northwest Passage was still there. So there was still a lot of interest. And in 1859, I would argue the most important find took place when a ship called the Fox went on a two-year journey to try and find the Franklin Expedition. And... They found in a cairn an absolutely critical document. So cairns, if you don't know, they are piles of stones, which are very large and very tall, and they are effectively cache markers. So you would, if you were storing food on an island for whalers or or shipwreck survivors to live off, you might bury that food under a stone cairn for two reasons. First, so it's easily 
visible and second to protect it from whatever wildlife happens to be on that island sure. so in the case of arctic exploring if you just put a case of food on the ground and left it it would be gone because polar bears have right. a remarkable sense of smell and they are determined so you would bury it under a cairn the second thing that a cairn would be used for is for storing messages so you would build a cairn you would write a message which would be essentially a, a log of what you were doing and what you were, what you had been doing and what you were going to do next. And then you would bury it under the cairn so it could be found by other sailors who might be coming to rescue you. Or if you, God forbid, don't make it back, it would tell you why you hadn't made it back. That was so, a fairly common um, uh, thing for uh, explorers to do, wasn't it? To build cairns and to leave information for anybody else that might come across it that's right and indeed for their own if they were got into trouble and had to turn turn back there were places where they could uh, have provisions for them to to use that's right it's quite fascinating for explorers not just in the arctic but everywhere particularly around the south pacific actually andrew um we have in new zealand we have captain cook pigs and they're so named because they were pigs that are descendants of pigs that Captain Cook dropped off on various Pacific <laughs> islands and atolls to help shipwreck survivors. So part of part yes. of their role was to seed effectively animals which could be used to survive should you be shipwrecked mm-hmm. and washed ashore there. And I find that fascinating. And their descendants yes. are running around the New Zealand bush right now. It's <laughs> <That was> great. <laughs> So the crew of the Fox found a cairn and they found a recorded note on Victory Point. And I'm going to read you a little bit of that now. 28th of May, 1847, although some argue that it was actually 1846. HMS ships Erebus and Terra wintered in ice, having wintered at Beachy Island, after having ascended Wellington Channel to latitude 77 degrees and returned by the west of Cornwallis Island. Sir John Franklin commanding the expedition, all well. Now that's recorded in the middle of the note. It's an official document from the Admiralty and it's, it's effectively a template and you fill in the details of your expedition and then there's some stock standard content on it which says whoever finds this paper is requested to forward it to the secretary of the admiralty london with a note of the time and place at which it was found or if more convenient to deliver it for that purpose to the british consul at the nearest port and then that statement is translated into one two three four five six seven different languages Wow. So effectively, this is on official admiralty paper where you put in your journey details and then you've got six or seven languages saying, if you find this, could you be so kind as to take it so that we get an update on where our ship might be? <laughs> Which I think is delightful. Then there's some additional content. At the foot of the page, in uh, a guy called James Fitzjames's writing, an update. Party consisting of two officers and six men left the ships on Monday, the 24th of May, 1847. Signed, GM Gore, Lieutenant, and F. DeVoe, Mate. Fitzjames added further text a further year later around the edges of the piece of paper. So imagine a piece of paper with the place to write the update in the middle, 
And then they've written down the bottom and update a year later. And then a further year later, they're writing on the edges of the paper. Mm -hmm. So by this stage, the small piece of paper is a mess and they're writing on any sphere space they've got because they don't have any additional paper. April 25, 1848. So this is three years after the expedition began. HM ships Terra and Erebus were deserted on the 22nd of April, five leagues north-northwest of this, having been beset since the 12th of September 1846. Beset meaning stuck in the ice. So they were essentially stuck in the ice for two years, mm. which means that the ice did not thaw, which means they could not leave yeah. where they had landed. The officers and crews, consisting of 105 souls, under the command of Captain Francis Crozier, landed here. This paper was found by Lieutenant Irving under the cairn supposed to have been built by Sir James Ross in 1831, four miles to the northward, where it had been deposited by the late Commander Gore in June 1847. So it's actually a reused piece of paper from, a, from an earlier expedition. <laughs> Sir James Ross's pillar has not, however, been found, and the paper has been transferred to this position which is that in which Sir John Ross's pillar was erected. Sir John Franklin died on the 11th of June, 1847, and the total loss by deaths in the expedition has been, to this date, nine officers and 15 men. Hmm. Signed, James Fitzjames, Captain HMS Erebus, and countersigned, Francis Crozier, Captain and Senior Officer. And then there is a final note at the very bottom, and start tomorrow, 26th, for Bax Fish. River. So at this point, they're confirming that Sir John Franklin had died a year and a half earlier. The Erebus had a new captain. They'd lost a total of 24 men who had mm -hmm. died, nine officers and 15 men. They had lost or abandoned both ships, and they were heading for Beck's Fish River. Now, from where they were, it was about a thousand mile journey. And they were pulling sleds. And on top of those sleds, they had their boats. And inside those boats, they had provisions. They had firearms and fuel and food, things you'd expect. But they also had some quite bizarre items, not least amongst them a rather ornate writing desk that belonged to Sir John Franklin. Like I mentioned it earlier when I was talking about his quarters. Yeah. So they had with them in their boats when the boats were found and when these things were found later, some very odd things that were very, very heavy that couldn't be used in any way to survive, and you certainly couldn't eat them. And because of the extreme terrain that they were journeying on, any additional weight that had gone to these boats must have been just diabolical. Mm -hmm. So... If you think of 40 men pulling a sled with a, with a boat 
I mean, a, this is a full-size wooden boat on it, overturned. Think of a, um, a life raft, but made out of heavy, heavy wood. And pulling that across ice, that's hard. Now realise that that ice isn't flat ice that you might go skiing or ice skating on. This is ice that is irregular, that has pressure points that thrust up through it every few metres. Mm-hmm. So there's no smooth path. There's certainly no roads. So often you're not actually pulling the sled, you're lifting the sled. Yeah. You're using ropes to pull it over um, humps and uh, cracks in the ice, fissures in the ice. And they set off to walk a 1,000 miles in those conditions in near total darkness and a land with no food covered in polar bears. <laughs> Think of the state of mind they would have been in. So people were very puzzled that they'd taken this course of action. People were very excited that they'd found evidence of what they were doing mm-hmm. and at least in part understand what had happened to Sir John Franklin to the ships. But everyone was very puzzled as to why they would go in that direction. Now, there's all sorts of theories about this. And chief amongst them comes back to exhuming the body of John Torrington on Beachy Island, the, the moment and the photo that inspired the song Stranger in a Strange Land. When they looked at the bones of Torrington. In fact, that's the, the reason they went there to exhume the bodies and do an autopsy on them because they'd already studied some of the bones they found um, around uh, where the, the, the bodies that were in the, um, the overturned boats, the cannibalist bodies. They'd already done some study on the bones and they'd found they had quite high proportion of lead in them. So they had bones from Inuit people who had died around the same time, so around 1850. And they found that the bone samples from the Erebus crew had lead levels about 10 times higher than those of Inuit people. And they thought, well, that's that's something. That's a little weird. So a forensic specialist, Mr. Beatty from Canada, went over to Beachy Island and he exhumed the three bodies um, and performed. They actually built it. That's what the documentary is about. They actually performed and built a full radiology suite on Beachy Island um, which is no mean feat. It's it's an exceptional piece of work. And they found that this lead level was quite high in all of the bodies. And they mm. thought, is there something in this? And then they examined the cans that they'd found on Beachy Island. So Beachy Island, because it was a semi-permanent settlement where they'd been for some six months onwards, it had a it had its own rubbish dump. And it was full of cans from the food they'd been eating that they took on the ship. And they were able to examine these cans. And they noticed that on the inside of the cans were huge globs of solder. So mm. tin cans today are a very standard, extremely common thing with all sorts of health standards around them. Tin cans in 1845, very different scenario. So the technology was amazing, but it was also very new, and there were different techniques in doing it. Now, the actual company that won the tender for provisioning the Erebus and the Terra for the Franklin Expedition, it was their first rodeo in terms Mm. of making tin food and supplying to a naval expedition. Mm. So Franklin was actually strongly against using them, but he was overruled by the Admiralty because this company were significantly cheaper than all of the competition. 
you'd think that would be enough for the Admiralty to be suspicious, but no, they saw the advantage in, in paying a little bit less, quite sure. a bit less, and getting more food. So when they looked at the solder on the inside of these cans, it was lead solder, and it had leaked all the way through into the cans, mm. huge amounts of it. So that lead would have been slowly being absorbed by the food mm -hmm. and then when you would you would heat this you would heat these tins up to heat the food inside it and then you would eat it so that heating process would further bring the lead into the food now there are other theories beyond this lead poisoning scenario obviously the, the implication of lead poisoning is that it's pretty severe um, health implications very bad stomach cramps um, loss of motion but the most commonly um, known about thing with lead poisoning is if you, its effect on your cognitive ability. Basically, you start making very poor decisions. Hmm. You go into mental decline. And so one very common theory is that when the crew had been eating, that eating all of this food over a period of five years, they were all suffering from the effects of lead poisoning, which led to them making some poor decisions, hence walking a thousand miles right. to, to the river. Mm. There are other theories, um, obviously poor nutrition, pneumonia, all sorts of things can make you do poor decisions. Um, so it's not necessarily the lead poisoning. I personally do lean towards the lead poisoning theory. Hmm. So at long last, we have an answer of what happened to Sir John Franklin. We have an answer to what happened to the crew of the Erebus and the Terror, and we have an answer of sorts to why they might have made some of the decisions they had made on the journey. And at this point, I'm going to hand back to Andrew, who's going to talk more about <laughs> Northwest Passage and what became of it. Yes. Um, thank you, James. That was excellent. Yeah. Uh, by the way, um, I remember James had a model of one of the ships that he was building. And I just wondered how well that was going because which <laughs> ship was it? <laughs> it's, it's the Terror and it is still going. Um, I build wooden, I build wooden ships cause I don't know. I'm old. It's a cool hobby for old people. Um, <laughs> so I, I've built several wooden ships. Uh, one a Viking ship took me six months. Uh, another a Spanish galleon, the San Francisco took me 12 years. The Terra wow. I've been working on for about five years. Um, wow. I'll go grab it in a minute and I'll show you, Andrew. Yeah. Um, it, it's got its hull on. I'm about to start working on the on the deck detailing and then the mast and rigging will go up. Um, yeah. This particular model, I, uh, when I've finished building it, I'm going to semi-destroy it. I'm going to make a diorama. So I'm going to show it trapped in ice. I'm going to weather it accordingly. I'm going to take the masts, lay them down, and I'm going to put the lifeboats outside the ship mm. to show it. So I'm essentially making the Terra trapped in ice. That's, wow. That's my ambitious plan. So I'm going, <laughs> I'm going to spend the best part of probably about probably take me seven or eight years to build the ship, and then I'm going to destroy it and encase it in ice. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Um, yeah, this, that's a, it's a little bit more advanced than an Airfix model. <laughs> <laughs> that's all detail. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. Anyway, so 
what happened next after the uh, Franklin expedition? Um, and what is the story of the Northwest Passage up to the present day? Um, so let's go back to about that time. And on the 5th of December, 1848, the President of the United States, James Polk, confirmed the discovery of gold in the newly acquired territory of California. And the resulting uh, California gold rush led to the it said to the city of or the currency of San Francisco to rise from effectively a fishing village of about 200 people in 1846 hmm. to 36,000 people just six years later as uh, mainly men came from across the world to find their fortune. Um, but there's one big problem. How on earth would they get there? Example, Steve, how long does it take you to drive to somewhere like San Francisco from where you are in Dallas? Mm. I think that, say, Los Angeles would probably be a 24 hour drive, and then San Francisco is just guessing. I'd say it's another. I have driven from LA to San Francisco actually in the last couple of months. Uh, I'd say it's probably another, let's just guess the mate and say another 12 to 14 hours. So it's say about mm -hmm. 36, okay. 38 hours from where I live. Okay. Yep. Which is about halfway across the United States, very roughly. Yeah. So the, dis the distance from New York to San Francisco is about two and a half thousand miles, mm -hmm. um, which is roughly the same distance to travel from London across the whole of Europe to Baku in Azerbaijan. But there were no roads, no railways, and the only sea route was a 21,000-mile voyage oh around the bottom of South America through the dangerous Cape Horn. And uh, it's also worth noting that the journey by ship from London to Sydney here in Australia via Brazil and South Africa is in comparison only 16,000 miles. <laughs> so it's a huge journey to undertake. If you yeah. went across land, of course, you're going across land where Native Americans, for example, might not be particularly pleased to see you. And um, there were no proper roads at all. Um, up until the 1980s, there were a number of 19th century ships laying abandoned and rotting in the harbour at Stanley on the Falkland Islands, uh, which is a group of islands 
as people that listen to our um, episode on the Falklands War will mm-hmm. remember. They're a group of islands just off the southern tip uh, uh, of South America in the South Atlantic Ocean. And these ships had attempted to sail around Cape Horn and had to turn back because of the conditions and find refuge in Stanley. And those ships that weren't able to be repaired were just left to rot. Um, of course, many more weren't so lucky. And um, Cape Horn was the last place on Earth they uh, they rested. So... The challenge of getting across the American continent was a quite a major one, and it was pretty much solved in 1869 with the opening of the Transcontinental Railway. But whilst the attempts to discover the fate of the Franklin expedition had found a the passage that you could follow through the ice and the islands of Canada's northern coastline, it wasn't until 1906 that a complete passage solely by ship was achieved. And it wasn't by the British, it wasn't by the French or the Russians or the Americans. It was the celebrated Norwegian explorer, Roald Amundsen, who sailed from Greenland to Alaska. And the time that Amazon spent um, learning from the local indigenous peoples of the Arctic equipped him well. Uh, for this voyage and for his most famous achievement uh, in the Antarctic, being the first to reach the South Pole and return safely in 1911. Perhaps rather um, frustratingly for him, uh, his achievements in both the Northwest Passage and in reaching the South Pole seem to be overshadowed by the failures of both Franklin and uh, Scott, Scott of the Antarctic. Um, uh, who both perished in their journeys. Um, in 1914, the United States government opened the Panama Canal, finally providing a safe and convenient sea route between the Atlantic and the Pacific Oceans, cutting through the narrow isthmus that separates North and South America. But the story doesn't end there. Um Amongst many other attempts to sail through the Northwest Passage, Belgian sailor Willy de Roos became the first to circumnavigate the whole of the Americas entirely by ship in 1977. And as we have global warming and the melting of the polar ice caps, uh, this, the Northwest Passage has become more accessible in recent years. Um, in 1984, a commercial passenger vessel, the MV Explorer, was the first cruise ship through the Northwest Passage. And in 2013, the MS Nordic Orion was the first bulk carrier to navigate the passage. And with some vessels these days now too large for the Panama Canal, the Northwest Passage has again become an increasingly attractive alternative to sailing around Cape Horn. Hmm. And indeed, the increase of traffic through the Northwest Passage has led the Canadian government to assert its control of the waters in and around the Canadian archipelago. Um, Now, this has led to a 
diplomatic dispute between Canada and its neighbour, the United States. Under the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea, Canada claims the waters within the Canadian Arctic Archipelago, which includes the Northwest Passage, as its internal waters. Uh, and that means that Canada can, can prevent any vessel passing through these waters. Hmm. I, I won't go into any more detail about maritime law. However, uh, the, the United States and some other nations dispute this claim and they say that the Northwest Passage is an international strait, which would mean that foreign vessels have a right of transit through these waters. Now, this dispute has remained largely unresolved uh, for over 50 years. Uh, Canada and the United States did sign an Arctic Cooperation Agreement in 1988, but in 2005, the USS Charlotte, a nuclear-powered submarine, was discovered to have used the Northwest Passage without Canadian approval, and of course raised the shekels of the uh, of the Canadians. Um, and this is perhaps the lasting and enduring uh, legacy of the Franklin expedition, and indeed the subsequent expeditions to discover its fate. Um, the mapping, as all the expeditions did, of the uh, of uh, the northern coastline of what is now Canada and the islands around it, um, basically led it all to become part of the British Empire. And when, of course, Canada expanded and gained uh, its uh, self government independence. Um, all of this territory, including the, the Arctic archipelago, was inherited by Canada. And therefore, the size of Canada and the fact that Canada has the longest coastline in the world of any country um, is all perhaps a result of the Franklin expedition. So, hooray for Canada. <laughs> I don't know if James has any more to add to to that, but that's, I think, the conclusion of the story. Well, there is one more chapter. Ooh. Oh, yes. <laughs> so, the Northwest Passage. Ah, yes, of course. <laughs> Sir John Franklin is known to have died. The bodies of many of the survivors, or at least the remains of the bodies of many of the survivors, have been found. We have the note at Victory Point on King William Island that says that the ships were abandoned, but we don't have any ships. So what happened to the Terra and what happened to the Erebus? So this story continues to fascinate. More than 100 years after the discovery of the bodies on Beachy Island and, and the discovery of the, the note at Victory Point on King William Island, people wanted to know where the ships were. Sure.
why can't we find any relics of the ships themselves? Now, the Inuit people, again, very, very strong oral history and a culture of sharing stories and sharing knowledge through stories, as many indigenous populations has, as the Aboriginal people of Australia, the Māori people in New Zealand, Inuit people in the North American continent, they use stories to tell their history. They had stories about what had happened to these ships, and they described through their oral tradition where these ships were, and these stories were consistently ignored Hmm. through the arrogance of Western cultures who viewed Inuit as little more than savages to be uh, treated as such. The ships were effectively lost, despite these Inuit stories that they described where they were. Um, In 2016, the terror was found. Now, this was actually two years after the Erebus was found. Hmm. They were found by joint expedition with the Canadian government and the Inuit people. Um, they were found near King William Island, which is where Victory Point is. King William Island being actually an island, and at the time it was thought to be a peninsula. And the way in which the crew of the Erebus and the Terror walked towards Great Back River Um Essentially, they found the Northwest Passage by accident, (laughs) by being able to cross it because it was frozen. They didn't realize that it was an island even then. Mm. Um, But the fact that it is an island when the ice is gone means that that is where the North Passage lies. Um, So that that was a huge, huge thing for them. Um, So the area in which people were looking for the ships was obviously based on the note at Victory Point because it contained longitude and latitude mm-hmm. records, which is pretty comprehensive. And navigational tools, although primitive by today's standards, were extremely accurate um, for the time. The ships, because they were in theory in ice, would have moved with the ice had they not sunk. So the search radius was known to have to be quite wide rather than literally mm-hmm. at those long lap points. So. Because things things get stuck in ice, they move with the ice flows, and then when the ice eventually melts, you could be hundreds of miles away. So the terror was found, and this is irony at its finest, it was found off the coast of King William Island in a place called Terror Bay. Purely coincidental. Obviously named inspired by the terror but it was actually in terror bay that was 96 kilometers south of its last recorded position in the victory point note so it was not an area that was commonly being searched but the canadians being good guys listened to the inuit people and started to pay a lot more credence to their oral stories and combined with their scientific knowledge and the inuit knowledge they finally knew the right places to look um, so they found the Erebus and they found the Terra and they are in remarkable states of preservation. Hmm. The cold of the water and the depth to which they sunk means they're effectively perfectly preserved. In fact, there's a, there's a quote from Adrian, I'm going to get this wrong, apologies, Shimnowski from the Arctic Research Foundation. And it says, if you could lift this ship and pump the water out, it would probably float. (laughs) 
<laughs> they have since sent in submersibles, remote camera submersibles, into the ships. There are bottles on shelves. There are all the hatches have been sealed shut. There are books, probably inside closed chests on board. Wow. There are plates stacked neatly in piles on shelves and on tables. Wow! It's as if it's just been abandoned yesterday. It is uh, well worth looking on YouTube for the footage of the Erebus and the Terra submersibles. It's it's like stepping back in time, pardon the maiden pun. There is even hope that inside some of these sealed compartments in the ship, there may be ship's logs, and that the ship's logs may be preserved well enough to actually be read. Wow. So it is a literal treasure trove of historical and archaeological information that is being very well protected by the Canadians and the Inuit government. I believe they have separate governments. Um, you, I believe a couple of years ago, a cruise ship, a smaller cruise ship, had permission to travel to one of the sites. Um, so tourists can actually go and see it. Mm. But it's very, 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 very tightly controlled by the Canadian Inuit governments, which is a good thing. Mm-hmm. The intention is to study and to retrieve relics and try and understand more about why the ships were abandoned. Because crucially, the hulls on these ships are not broken. Hmm. So why did they sink? Don't know. Why were they abandoned? Don't know. Was it simply that they were at the end of their tether in terms of provisions and they knew they had to make the journey or die? The ships weren't going anywhere encased in ice as opposed to the ships had been destroyed and sunk quickly overnight. Yeah. Two very different scenarios. We're not sure which one actually played out. But the ships are largely intact, and in theory, they could even be refloated one day. I personally don't want that to happen. <laughs> but stranger things have happened. <laughs> yeah. There we go. There we go. Well, I, I got to admit, that, that was really very, very interesting. It's, I, I like the song, but I think the history is more interesting than the song, <laughs> than, than, yeah. the song than the song actually gives us. <laughs> So, um, Andrew, first off, you, you were the original bringer of this entire idea. So without your idea, this wouldn't be happening right now. So first of all, thank you, Andrew. It's a pleasure, definitely. And it's a pleasure to be chatting with, uh, not only yourself, but James as well. Yeah. Cheers, James. Thank you, James. I appreciate you coming in and doing this with Andrew because, uh, A, it's good to see your face and hear your voice again and, uh. B, you know, you brought a lot of uh, very interesting stuff, so thank you. It was an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Yeah. Um, one, one thing to close with, if I may. Absolutely. The artwork versus the song lyrics. So in hindsight, um, given how poignant the story of John Torrington, the discovery of his body and the fate of, of all the men on the Franklin Expedition, I'm very, very pleased that the band chose a Robert Heinlein-themed artwork because I think depicting John Torrington as Eddie in any way Mm. would have been hugely disrespectful. Mm. And obviously I don't know, but I'd like to think that uh, Rod, Bruce, Adrian, or Derek Riggs himself worked that out very early on and went Mm. in a totally different direction in the art. And I'm really pleased that they did that. Yeah, you know that that thought went through my head yesterday. Is is yeah. um, what why they didn't 
use that image with Eddie on it, but you're right, it would have been entirely disrespectful. It's, it's hard to think of any Maiden-themed artwork that wouldn't have been disrespectful if they'd gone for the actual Franklin Expedition theme. Mm. I, I can't think of how they would have done it without, yeah, just being hugely disrespectful. So I'm really, really pleased that they did. Mm. Okay. So, so and it I, helped with the mystery as well. Yeah, it does. <laughs> Our own little mystery. <laughs> so, as usual, Iron Maiden pleases us. Common thing. Pleases theme. highly. Yes. <laughs> well done, lads. Yeah. Well, thank you, guys, and cheers, everybody. Cheers. Thanks, Steve. Thank yeah. you, Andrew.